0: This morning, uh, Pastor Jim Whittle is with us. Uh, Occasionally, he joins us to preach the word for us when um, Pastor Andrew is out. And so, uh, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if you want to follow along with me in your Bible, and I think it'll be up on the screen, uh, you can do so now. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves but each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of god So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's Word.
1: Good morning, church. Good morning. Glad to be back here with you, Sherry, and I love being in Carrollton with you on Sunday morning and uh, just. To get it over with, the first thing people ask me every time they see me is when are you going, either when did you get home or more, more likely when did you go back, when are you going back to India? And for those of you who haven't met, I work for Equipping Leaders International and I'm the India director. And it gives me just a little bit of a complex when people, the first thing they ask me is is when are you leaving? <laughs> and And so the answer to that question is January. I'm here for the holidays to, be with my family and to work on my doctorate, to do a bunch of writing and reading and boring stuff that you don't want to hear about. This morning, we're in Philippians 2. Before we get to the passage, I just want to let you know about an event that's happening uh, this month on October 20th. That's a Friday in three weeks. It'll be at Midway Presbyterian Church. It's our annual banquet for ELI, and we moved this around from city to city. Last year, it was in Jacksonville, The year before that was in Memphis. This year it's in Atlanta. This is our global event. This year it's called Thy Kingdom Come. We're focusing on India. It'll be a dinner banquet followed by a program. It starts at 6.30 with a silent auction. We'd love for any of you to come. We'd want to know that you're coming, so we have enough food. So, if you're interested in coming and hearing more about what Equipping Leaders is doing around the globe, and particularly in India, please come. It's in Powder Springs at Midway Press on Friday, the October 20th. Just shoot me an email, JimWhittle.eli at gmail.com. If you didn't catch that, you can get it from Andrew. So, one of my favorite. Uh, One of my favorite stories of all time, really series of books, is the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure many of you have read those books by C.S. Lewis. The, The first one most people read is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's been turned into a movie numerous times. And if you remember the story, Edmund is a traitor. And in Narnia, the law says that traitors have to be put to death. And the white witch is certain that she has finally outfoxed the mighty lion Aslan, who's the hero of the story. And because the great lion has offered to die in Edmund's place, because there's a law in Narnia that a traitor has to die. But there's another law that says that someone who's not a traitor can die in their place and they'll be forgiven. So the witch can hardly contain herself. She's trying to keep a straight face and keep it all together because her nemesis, the lion Aslan, is going to be put to death and she's going to rule the world without anyone standing in her way. And so she has, at the same time, she has nothing but disdain for the weakness of the lion offering himself as a substitute with the unimaginable motive being love, who, who would who would ever give themselves away in love for a worthless traitor like Edmund? But you see, the, lo- the the witch didn't completely understand all the magic of Narnia, and there was a greater magic that Aslan, the Creator, had built into the kingdom, and we're going to see that magic today in this passage. We've already sung about it, and we're going to feast at the table and celebrate it, and it is glorious. Our focus this morning is on verses 5 to 8. 1 to 11 gives us the context, but it's way too many verses to study in one week. The first four verses of the passage that Andrew just read show how the gospel is the basis for our unity and the joy of church unity. And then in verse 5, Paul moves from exhortation and instruction to illustration. He points us to the humility of Christ. Now, the temptation for Presbyterians at a point like this is to get really bogged down into the theology of the passage and maybe even spend weeks studying the nature of Christ. But you see, the Bible's not a systematic theology textbook. It's the history of redemption focusing on the Lord Jesus. And so the lesson is not centrally about the theology of the nature of Christ, though that's in there. The core lesson for us this morning is about humility toward one another. And the theology is there because it's understood by the Philippians already. And the imperatives of the Bible are always built on the indicative. So we're going to do a little theology, and then we're going to apply it to my life and to yours. I have three things to share with you this morning from this text. Three points. I think they're in the bulletin. The first is is that we are that Jesus is equal with God. Now, have you ever met anybody in the church who says something like this? Well. You know, I'm, I'm not really into doctrine. I, I just want to go to church somewhere where I, I can really feel the presence of Jesus. And I, I feel the warmth when we sing and, and, uh, and just really feel the joy of being with God's people. And, and I, I don't know if you've met folks like that, but I, I've met quite a few of those folks over the years. Maybe it's you. And, and my response is always the same. I always ask, well, who is Jesus. And, and, and the answer to that question, of course, is doctrine. And so it's just my nature. I can't resist asking the question, who, who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? Well, Paul says here that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And some people over the years have come to the conclusion that this means that Jesus was not God, that he was something lesser, and that he was not equal with the Father. But you see, that would miss the most obvious point that Jesus, Paul says that Jesus was by nature God, and he was in the form of God, and that means he is God. One year at Christmas, when Sherry and I and the kids lived in Florida, Uh, About 20 years ago, I was standing on the top of my six-foot step ladder, you know, on that step that says, don't stand here. And uh, I I was hanging the lights, the Christmas lights, and I was up at the top of the gable, and I was on my tiptoes on that step, and uh, my son Josh was behind me helping me, and all of a sudden the sand started to shift because it's Florida and the ladder started to go and I'm going down and I grab onto the roof right there, grasping at it and if I was a superhero, I would have held on but since I'm not, I fell down and I hit the fence on the way down and I hit my side really hard on a six foot fence and I fell on the ground and my son Josh says, Are you okay, Dad? He was about eight. Are you okay? And I said, Just just hold on, let me count the bones and I'll see if I'm okay. And as it turns out I was okay. Josh has never been the same. He won't get on a stepladder. But <laughs> but as I was holding on there, grasping the hold on, that that's exactly the phrase that Paul is using right here. That's the picture. You see, the pre-incarnate Jesus was God, but he didn't hold on. He, he didn't grasp his equality with God and cling to it. Instead, he gave it up, and he emptied himself so that he could come down, just like I did, except he did it on purpose. Now the question is, is he, is he God? And the, the short answer is yes. But you know, I remember being a young Christian, having some doubts about the deity of Christ and thinking maybe it was just some tradition. But let me show you just from scripture. We'll just look at a few verses in the book of John alone and see. So if you got a Bible, you can turn to John 1. I think this is going to be on the screen. I hope so. John 1, 1 to 3 is what we're going to read first. It says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then you can turn to chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 17 and 18. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Chapter 8, verse 56 to 59, Jesus answered them and said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that quote of I am is the, the, the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. So they picked up stones to throw at him because he just claimed to be God. But Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. Chapter 10, verse 30. To 33, he says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then, chapter 14, verse 6 to 9. And Jesus said, To Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, okay, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then chapter 17 on the last night of his life as he was praying, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, that's just a few of the verses of Scripture. Just actually, there's more in John. They're all over the place. Is it not obvious that Jesus is God, that he's equal with the Father in power and great glory? And, you know, the Jews, modern people read some of these and they say, well, Jesus wasn't really claiming to be God. Well, the Jews had no doubt about what Jesus was saying. We read it several times and they were going to stone him. And Jesus, who was prone to correct error, never corrected them. And to drive it home, I usually list out four things to show Jesus is God. First, Jesus has the names of God. He's called Lord. He is the great I am. He called himself that in John 8. He says the same thing when he walks on the water. At the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist is said to be preparing the way For the Lord. So if you do a geeky little study of that and look up the passage that's being quoted from Isaiah 40, you'll find out that the word Lord there in the Old Testament is Jehovah, which means that Jesus is Jehovah. And and in Revelation 1, Jesus is called the first and the last and the living one. Uh, both are names of God alone. So, first of all, Jesus bears the names of God. Secondly, Jesus does the works of God. He heals the sick, He drives out demons, He raises the dead, he, he controls the wind and the waves, He walks on the water, He forgives sin and the great miracle that proves He is the Messiah. He feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, bringing manna bread from heaven. He's the Creator and the sustainer of life. Hebrews 1 says he upholds all the universe by the word of his power. So he not only bears the names of God, he does the works of God. Thirdly, Jesus has the attributes of God, the character of God. He is forever, and he's eternal. Notice that he said, return me to the glory that I had with you before the world began. He was in the beginning with the Father. He is forever, and he's eternal. He knows their thoughts when he's around them. He he is sinless. Colossians 1, I think you've studied it, it says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says that he's the exact imprint or the exact representation of God's nature. So fourthly, Jesus receives worship. So not only does he have the names of God, Not only does he do the works of God, not only does he have the attributes of God, but Jesus also receives worship. Now, for anyone to be worshiped and receive worship in God's place would be idolatry and blasphemous. But Jesus never corrects anyone for bowing down and worshiping him and calling him Lord. After the resurrection, when Thomas touches his hands and his side and sees the scars... He bows down before him and he says, my Lord and my God. And this happens all throughout the book of Revelation where Jesus receives worship. You know, we have an old saying in the South. If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and if it tastes like a duck, (laughs) it must be a duck. Well, Jesus has the names of God. He does the works of God. He has the attributes of God, and he receives the worship of God. There's only one conclusion to come to. He must be God. So that's the first thing we saw in this passage. I promised you a little theology. That's it right there. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus gives up that equality that, that he doesn't grasp, it. instead he takes on the form of a servant. Look again at Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the eternal word The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, he set aside his rights to his throne and the glory of his name, and he became a bondservant. He he didn't cease to be God, but he took on the form of a servant. He, He became a human, made in the likeness of men. Now, the church and history has often had a strange relationship with the Bible's clear teaching that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's a little hard, I know, because you're one person and one nature. And then somebody says, well, the God is Trinity. He's one nature, three persons. And then somebody says, and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, he's one one person and two natures. And you kind of, your head starts to hurt. At least mine does. If you think too much about it, it will hurt. But the Bible clearly teaches it. So just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not true. I don't know what it is to be like an elephant and be ridden. But you see, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? It did happen. So, he takes on the form of a servant. He's fully God and fully man. Now, in our scientific age of reason that started about 150 years ago, it's necessary for us in the modern world to come up with proof that Jesus was God, and we just don't believe it. So, that's why I walked through that exercise with you. It's a clear teaching of Scripture that Jesus is God. But, you know, in the first century, many people denied that Jesus was a man. They had no problems with Jesus being God, but in their worldview, natural things, physical things are evil, and so therefore God would never stoop himself to take on flesh. So that idea that God would become a man was impossible. They'd say he wouldn't do it. So what does the Bible say? Well, the apostle John says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You see, because in the early church, they were dealing with the blasphemy that said Jesus wasn't a man. So in the modern world, we deny he's God. In the ancient world, they denied he's man. The Bible teaches both very clearly. It was obvious to the people of the first century that Jesus was God, but they couldn't get the human part. But you see, that's why the Bible goes to such lengths to show us his birth. He was born of a woman. It shows us his hunger and that he ate, that he was thirsty and that he drank and that he grew weary and he needed rest and and that he died. He wasn't Superman. He was just a man. Clearly, Jesus was a physical man in the flesh. And so the, the question of this text that Paul's asking is, have you ever considered all that Jesus gave up to become a man? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever meditated on just how much he sacrificed for you and and, and for me? He he never ceased being God, but he did set aside his divine rights. He set aside his divine glory and and veiled the fullness of his power. Jordan told us that in the 11 months, the hardest thing was that she'd left aside comfort and friendship. Friendship. And those are the two key things that Jesus set aside. He set aside the friendship of being face-to-face with the Father always from eternity. And he set aside the comfort and the glory of being the one who is worshipped on a throne in heaven. He limited his knowledge of all things. He set aside his eternal riches and became poor for our sake. He veiled the fullness of his power. And though all-powerful, he made himself dependent upon others. His his mother fed him and bathed him and and nurtured him. He wore diapers. Although he was omnipresent, he tied himself to, to a body, one place, subject to time, just like you and me. He set aside his independent authority. Although he was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he set aside his rights to divine authority and only did what the Father told him to do. Though deserving of worship in the central place of the universe, he subjected himself to be a servant to a poor family in Nowheresville. It'd be like he was from Bremen or... Or, or Buchanan, or m- m- maybe Roopville. What, what, Jesus really, what Jesus really set aside was his face-to-face relationship with the Father, eternal, undiminished, unfettered. In the garden, we read that passage from John 17, in the garden he re- yearned to return to the glory of the fellowship with his Father, And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he emptied himself and he became a servant. So the book of Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. It was Jesus' role in redemption to be God's perfect suffering servant in our place. So Jesus says in Mark 10, I'm not here to be served. It's a lesson for leaders. He says, I'm not here to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Everywhere he went, he carried other people's burdens. You see, the world, beloved, says that the road to glory is through self-exaltation and grasping everything you can get along the way. Power, prestige, possession, position. But in the kingdom of God, the road to glory is always through humility and servanthood and letting go of rights and giving away your things, even your treasure. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was predicting his death and resurrection. The disciples, they couldn't get their mind around it at all. So instead of listening and responding, they argued. The Bible says they were arguing first about who was greatest. And then secondly, they were arguing about, well, who would get to sit at his right and his left. They, they wanted power and prestige and position. And so Jesus took a little child and brought him before him to show it. Because a child, you see, has no rights. And then he said, the greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man. In other words, he did not have a glorified body. As a man, he had no advantages over you and me physically. He subjected himself to the curse for our sake. Uh Oh, he was sinless, but, but he didn't skim across the water of human experience on a wakeboard escaping temptation and pain or grief. Jesus subjected himself to the full human experience. Theologians call this his humiliation. He was born of a woman. He was far from the comforts of home on the night of his birth. His family had to run away in order to save his life. He subjected himself to the authority of his sinful parents. Now, young people, teenagers, I, I know that you think your parents are often wrong and they're stupid and foolish and even unfair. But imagine yourself for just a moment, the sinless son of God, subjecting himself to your parents. Well, Jesus did that. And so can you. He long, he, he, Right? That's what the passage says, right? Jesus did it, so you're supposed to do it. He longed for his eternal father's house and his eternal father's glory, and so at age 12, he couldn't be kept from the deep things at the temple, but it was not yet his time. He grew in stature and and wisdom, waiting patiently for God's time, working in his family business, you know, still stuck in Bremen. He, He left home again, And he depended on others for his daily sustenance. He was misunderstood, ridiculed, and opposed. He was tired, and he was often lonely, would get off by himself. His own family thought he was crazy. He was used and bothered and sometimes annoyed. He was confronted with the worst in humanity, the worst illnesses, the worst demons, and the worst pride. He, he subjected himself to the mockery of a corrupted trial and the authority of his own sinful elders. And then he... That's what a pastor does. And then he subjected himself to the cruelest death known to humanity, a Roman cross, so hideous that Roman citizens were excluded. And for three hours, darkness reigned on the face of the land as the Eternal One subjected himself to the horrors of the cross. His friends deserted him in fear. He was even forsaken and rejected by the Father so that you wouldn't be. He experienced hell for us on that cross. Every human experience you've ever faced, Jesus has already been there. You've suffered pain, he's felt it. You've been humiliated, it was his whole life. You've been forsaken, none more than him. Your grief is his grief. Your sorrow is his sorrow. Your pain is his pain. Your rejection is his rejection. Your hurts, his hurts. And the good news is, is that his joy becomes your joy. He has been tempted in every way that you have, yet without sin. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? What a Savior. And that takes us to the third part of the passage because we're not excluded. And we're going to talk about your attitude and my attitude. That's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the verse is an imperative. It's a command. There's a singular part and a plural part in the grammar when you dig underneath The command to have the same attitude is given to individuals. It's in the singular. So the command to individuals is to have the same mind or the same attitude as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the singular part. The plural part is to whom we are to have the same mind, and that's among yourselves. In other words, Paul is telling each one of us to have the same attitude as Christ toward others. And that attitude, we read in verses 3 and 4 this morning. We studied it back in March when I was here. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, beloved, we cannot imitate Christ in providing redemption for his people. But we can imitate his attitude in providing sacrificial love and care for one another. I read this tweet just this weekend. It says this, when you realize he sacrificed to give you life, you will start to say, how can I sacrifice to give other people life? Paul tells us to be like-minded. To be one in purpose. So it was with the son and the father. They shared eternal glory together. Agreeing even on the manner in which we might be redeemed. The cross of Christ. Paul tells us humbly consider others better than ourselves. Every step. Every moment. Every day of of his life. Jesus lived this out in this fashion. He had eternal rights to glory. He gave them up. He had the right to be worshiped. He forsook it. He had divine authority to get his way. He submitted to the Father and to other people. He had the right to be honored by other men. He ignored it. So Paul tells us to live in the same way for the interests of others. That was the life of the master. He was so much a man for others, even to the point of death. So Jesus says there's no greater love than to give up your life for your friends and it's a lot easier to step in front of a car or a bullet for somebody than to deny your rights every single day in your home, in your family, with your roommate, in school, at work. So Paul has a, says, have the same attitude. When you realize he sacrificed to give us his life, to give us life, you'll start to say, "How can I sacrifice to give other people life?" In a dispute, you may be wrong, and the, you may be right, and the other person wrong. But you see, we defer, we reconcile because in Christ we give up our rights to be right. That's really hard. All our rightness is in Christ Jesus. We practice this in personal relationships and we practice it in public ones. Every day there is some disagreement on Facebook and Twitter. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's almost amusing just to read the story of the day. You don't even have to go to the newspaper anymore. Now, this week it's the national anthem. Who knows what it's going to be next week? Biblical humility requires us to understand the one whom we disagree with and love them still and respect them still, assuming that others are smarter, that they're more informed, and maybe correct. Now that, I don't know about you, but that's hard to do. It's hard for me to do, isn't it? You, you may be hurt, and the one who caused you pain not may not deserve forgiveness. They may not have asked, they may not have admitted their wrong. But we forgive, you see, because in Christ we give up our rights to hold on to our hurt and bitterness because all our hurt was put on the Lord Jesus on the cross. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us that we actually ask the Father to use the same standard for forgiveness with us that we use with others. Now, that's incredible. And and when Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, go back and read it, he doubles down on this part of the prayer and says, if you can't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. No wonder we need to pray. Amen? When you see a need, it may not be convenient to meet the need. But we serve because in Christ, all our rights to comfort and convenience have been forsaken. We invite others into our lives who are hard to love. Why do you do that? Because we're hard to love. You know that, right? You get that. The Father loved us while you were still hard to love. Still an enemy, the Bible says. So we practice the same hospitality. Do you see, beloved, how desperately we grasp and hold and cling to our rights in our relationships with others? So Paul says, have the same attitude as Christ. And my soul and my heart cry out, how? Lord, how am I going to be like this? I'm not Jesus. I, I don't think I can do it. And his answer is always the same. Because I have done it for you, my child. Because I am changing you and making you new and building you in the image of my son. So trust me. Ask me. Here's what the Apostle Peter says. I think it'll be on the screen. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. That's a key phrase in that passage. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You see, the only road to exaltation in God's kingdom is the pathway of humility. And Christ has paved that road with his own blood, his own sweat, and his own humility. And he beckons us to follow. He says, come, my children, come. Now, here's the bad news. Because there is bad news. The bad news is that if you seek glory and exaltation in another fashion besides kingdom humility in Christ, if you seek it by self-promotion, by attention-seeking, by, by through possession and through position and through privilege and through power and virtual signaling on Facebook, well, if you seek it that way, you will find it. See, that's the trouble. You will find it. The world will always welcome one more power broker, one more narcissist. We even elect them as president sometimes. You will be rewarded for your glory seeking in this life, but the way of the kingdom will be crowded out, you see. Not, not only will you lose the rewards that matter most, which is exaltation in God's kingdom, but the way of the cross may even be crowded out of your life altogether, and you could be lost. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even the sin of self-seeking. And self-exaltation. And he rose from the dead to give us new life, filled with his power of humility to live for God and for others. So I invite you today to put your faith in Christ. Renew your trust in him and all the work that he has done on your behalf to make you into this person who is humble. Let the Father exalt you in the kingdom through humble trust in Christ. Now, I don't know if you've read the books or seen the movie, but how did it work out for Edmund? For Aslan to be a substitute in death and resurrection. Well, it worked out pretty well. Edmund became a new man. He was no longer a bully to small children, though he had been. He was no longer self seeking, though that defined his character. He asks his brothers and sisters for forgiveness. That's really hard. And when everyone else is too frightened to do so, Edmund finally finds courage. He courageously faces down the witch at the peril of his own life, and he became known as King Edmund the Just. What an incredible transformation, and it's just a kid's book. The gospel is for real. And it will transform your life if you ask the Father to do it. Jesus emptied himself of glory because of his faith in his forever Father. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He gave up all his rights and he subjected himself to the cross because he entrusted himself to the Father. The road to exaltation and glory for Jesus was the way of the cross. And he beckons us to follow. And Jesus believed the the Father that such humiliation on behalf of others would bring him exaltation and glory. And would bring glory to the people he did it for. And he makes the same promise to us, beloved. So, my friends, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ for he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that not only did the cross purchase our forensic need of forgiveness in the heavenly courts and provide a substitute in righteousness, but Lord, also to take away the power of reigning sin over us so that we would no longer be slaves to ourselves, seeking ourselves first, but would slowly become like our king and our Lord, our suffering servant and our friend so that we might live for others. So, Lord, would you do that in us this morning as we come to the table to feast in the Father's house? Would you change us and make us new for today and this week and forever? We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat.